morning, everyone. Can we do that again? Good morning, everyone. Good morning. So, in the last two months, we have been in this series called Church Words, where we look at a different word each week that is common in the Christian vocabulary, but we may not totally understand its meaning and how, um, how it relates to the Christian life. Uh, at the very beginning of the series that I was thinking about several months ago, I put together a total of 13 different messages that throughout the weeks I could choose from. And next week is our last one. In the month of November, we're going to go to a new series, uh, but next week's going to be our last one on church words. And so I have about six or seven messages that I could pick this week to end up preaching next week. But I thought, because this is election season, why not let you all choose what the message is next week? Now, before you get too excited, I've limited to three. You can choose three. And you have an opportunity right now to take out your phone, to QR scan that, and it's going to take you to our website, and you will get to vote. Now, before you try to stuff the ballot, I need to remind you I'm from Chicago. I know how to vote early and often as people who are dead for the last 20 years. So you cannot fool me. So I'm going to give you three options. The first option is going to be on predestination. What is election all about, if you've heard that word before? The second option is on God's will. How do we figure out what God's will is for my life? The third option is repentance. How do I really know I am sorry for my sin? If you cannot get to the website through the QR code, you can get to that same page by typing in our website, calvarypueblo.com slash vote. So that's, that's a second option. The third option is to wait until the end of the service and just admit through a raise of hand that the whole QR code thing, getting online with your phone, was not meant for you. We will let you vote at the end of the service for one of those three things. We'll then total it, and then at the very end of the service, after the band has done their last song and we're closing, they will flash up on the screen what the winning topic is, and that is what we will preach on. Rephrase that. That is what I will preach on next week. You know, uh, Major Walker, I appreciate that sentiment. Uh, I actually really, listen, listen, hold on. I really did think this week, how can I put all three of those together in a cohesive message and not make it feel like I'm just, okay, for 10 minutes I'm doing this, 10 minutes I'm doing this, 10 minutes I'm doing this. I really thought what verses I could look at that would incorporate all three, and there aren't any. In 3 Timothy 1.1, which is the gospel according to me, I could probably make one up, but uh, there is no third Timothy. Don't try looking for it. Um, so that's what we're going to do. Um, you can still scan that little code in front of you on the, on the seat, and that'll take you to our notes today and our weekly Digging Deeper devotionals. Uh, but you've got time right now. If you are watching this live, you've got to do it now because it's, the voting is going to be closed at the end of the service. So again, calvarypueblo.com slash vote. Use a QR code. You do have to put in your name, and pretty much since we know who everybody is, pretty much, you can't make up names and vote two or three times. We're going to catch that. 
Uh, Jeff is going to do a good job keeping track of all that between now and the end of the service. But at the end of the service, we will reveal the winning topic. Last week, all of that to say, last week we talked about justification. This idea of God sees us as if we have never sinned. And that is an action that God takes that cannot be revoked. It cannot be changed. It cannot be altered. It is what it is. When God says, you are justified, you are free before his eyes of any guilt, any sorrow, any sin, any violation of his law. It is as if you have lived a perfect life every step of the way. So when he justifies it, justifies us, it is a beautiful action. As I was thinking of justification, though, there is a reality that we all face. That may be beautiful, and it is beautiful, but how many of us this past week sinned? But you're justified. Before God is one of his children, you are justified, meaning you have lived a life just as if you've never sinned, but yet the reality is, is it not, that our anger got the best of us, our lust got the best of us, our envy got the best of us. Whatever it might be, we still sinned. How in the world is that possible, though? How is it possible that if I'm justified, I still sin? So, if I still sin, does that mean I'm not justified and I need to get saved again? That's the conclusion of some people. But today, we're going to address that entire topic and subject of if I was justified, why do I still sin by looking at the church word of the day, sanctification or sanctified. Now, simply, sanctification simply means set apart to be holy. Set apart to be holy. So you're sort of set apart in God's eyes to practice holiness, to be more and more like Jesus. You see, justification, while it is an act, sanctification is a process of living out that action. Justification is true of every believer who has faith in Christ, who looks to the cross for forgiveness, who sees God as their father, Abba. Sanctification is, all right, with that reality before God, I now have to live today with what resides in me still is a desire for selfishness. And that selfishness will show itself in the form of many different sins. Thinking for myself, wanting for myself, desiring for myself, doing for myself, putting myself ahead of God and others, which leads us nothing, nothing but sin as a result. So sanctification is the process, not act, of sinning less and less. Sinning less and less. It's Christian growth. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, we have this banner of a verse that says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That is the standard by which God looks at his children by saying, The old has passed away. The new has come. What is the new that's come? First of all, what's the old that passed away? The old that passed away is the, the life before you were a believer. The life before faith in Christ. 
The life before hope when death comes. The life before forgiveness. The life before loving others before yourself. The life where God is center stage. And it was you center stage. You were the idol of all that you did and thought. But when that transition happens and you believe that Christ is your Lord and Savior, that old passes away. It's gone. And what is new now is a new life. And sometimes that's described as being born again, saved, regenerated. There's lots of different terms for that new life. You are now on a new journey with a new destiny, with a new companion and fellowship. That is the church, the newness. The new has come. And so there should be a transformational difference between the way you were and the way you are today. Now that transition may not be a lot. If you've only known Christ as your Lord and Savior for a few weeks or a few months, you're not going to have a huge difference. There's going to be a noticeable difference, but it's not going to be as big a difference as someone who has walked the faith for 20, 30, 40 years. There should be a remarkable difference, not in your judging others, but the fact that you live less and less for sin should be noticeable. Romans 7, Paul, I think, unearths what every Christian dreads talking about. What Paul talks about in Romans 7, in essence, is how good the law is. The law is good, and the law really reveals our need for a Savior. And he goes through the entirety of Romans 7 talking about how good the law is, how the, good, the goodness of that law has showed him how weak he is in his own flesh. And as a believer, he says these kind of words in Romans 7. I'm starting, uh, kind of in, I'm starting in verse 13. And so he's talking about the law, the goodness of the law, the great things the law has brought, but then he has this comment about thinking about the law and living as this new creation, this newness of life, sanctification. He says in Romans 7, starting in verse 13, Did that which is good then bring death to me? He's talking about the law being good, but it reminds him of sin. So he says, is the law the good thing really bringing me a reminder of this death? He goes, by no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. Paul gives the expression of normal, this is very important, normal Christian experiences with sin. And he says in basic, in your heart, you will struggle with knowing what to do is right, 
but not doing it. I know that the stop sign is for you to stop at. Really, honestly, one, two, three, then go. I know that. But there is a part of me that even though I have perfect knowledge of what that stop sign means and why it's there and why it's good, oh, there's a part of me that says, no, it's outlined in white this time. Those are optional. And I justify it to myself. Or the speed limit, no way can it be 35 there. The road is designed at least for 45, 50, if you're being honest. But it says 35. No, Pueblo Boulevard, you go the speed limit. I've, you go 55 and no more than that until you get to the, the bridge, and then it's 45. No, you do not speed on Pueblo Boulevard. Uh, everywhere else is, yeah, whatever. But you have those same challenges. I know you do, not with maybe speeding or stop signs, but whatever that is, you know God wants you to treat someone with love, and respect and honor. And in that moment, in the heat of that moment, in a disagreement, you lash out. But maybe you are wise enough not to lash out, but you think it. You think it. And then all of a sudden you go, how did I fall into this? How did I fall into looking at that or watching that? How did I fall into participating with those kind of jokes. How did, I, how, did I, how did I sin? Because in your new nature, you know what is right. You know what is good and honorable before God, but, oh my goodness, don't you find yourself like Paul? I know what is good, but something inside of me just sometimes sins. And sometimes you have to get woken to that and shocked into realizing that you're in that state of sin and then rushes in to the child of God a real good guilt, a real good guilt of knowing I'm not in the right place. I'm not in the right place. Repentance, which is one of your three choices, and I'm not trying to influence your choice. Maybe you've already voted. That's fine. You can't change it. It's done. But repentance deals with how do I resolve that guilt of knowing what is right and good but not doing it? How do I get back out of that spiritual funk into a spiritual living vitality of Christian life? But Romans 7 continues in verse 21, Paul admitting, So I find it to be law that when I want to do right, Evil lies close at hand. And we find that same experience. We know what is right. We know what is good and honorable and cherished before God. And we sometimes fight it. And we sometimes choose the wrong answer. If there was no law, then we would probably be all on our own figuring that out. But God has given us law. And as we saw earlier in this series, Church Words... When we talk about law and commandments, what we're really talking about is the two big ones. Loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. Love. Love. And we face that decision, how do I love God today? 
How do I love the person you've put in my path today? Whether they are on the street corner, whether they're in the car in front of me or behind me, or whether they're the person at the table with me. How do I love them? Sometimes we choose the wrong way to express that love. And we find ourselves like Paul, that law of love compels me to do what is good and right, but I choose the wrong. He says in verse 22, For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being. And that's not pretentious because Paul is a legal scholar. But without that direction on how to love God and how to love others, life would be truly miserable. But God says, I'll show you how to love God. And God says, I'll show you how to love one another. And yes, as ridiculous as it sounds, the speed limit and road signs demonstrate love for others, right? Now, I, 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 you may have heard this joke, if it can be called a joke, but this guy gets into a taxi cab in New York City, and um, first time in New York City, and the taxi cab just barrels through every red light, just barrels through it, and uh, all of a sudden stops at a green light. And the passenger goes, I've noticed you've been barreling through all the red lights, but at the green light you stop. Why is that? He goes, well, my dad might be driving a taxi today, and he taught me how to drive. (laughs) Think about that for a second. Got it? All right. Yeah, that one's not going to end up on Facebook anytime soon. But there's that sense of, I delight in the law. Those road signs are good They demonstrate love for others. Because if you were going 100 down Pueblo Boulevard, you would be putting not only your life, but the lives of others in risk. And so the government has done a good thing in giving us guidelines, laws, in order to protect the sanctity of life of others. It's a good thing, as much as I make fun of it. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, Verse 23, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Paul says, as long as I, and Scripture tells us, as long as I live in this life, as long as I have breath and live, there is still this remaining remnant that challenges God's supremacy. It challenges Is it right? Is it wrong? It wants to violate those signs and rules. There's just something inside of us. And it's not because we want to. It's because we still live in this frail human flesh that gets attacked by emotions and attacked by... um, attacked by that same sense of wanting to be number one in everybody's eyes. Pride. And it shows itself at the most inopportune times and sometimes in the most vicious ways. And Paul says he struggles at that. I kind of figure, because I have a very high esteem for Paul, if he struggles at that, oh boy. It's going to be a lifelong struggle for me too then. If Paul struggled, what hope is there for us 
we're doomed to repeat that struggle. Oh, Tim, that's really pessimistic, and I really don't mean that, as we see further on. In the rest of that chapter of 7, Paul says, now this is a real good encouragement, verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Meaning, who will rescue Paul from that cycle of sin and repentance? Sin and repentance. Even though he's sinning less and less, sanctification, yet who's going to rescue him from that cycle of knowing what is right but doing what is wrong, of falling into sin time and time again? Who's going to rescue Paul from that humanity? He says in verse 25, Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Paul says there is this constant fight between my mind and my flesh, between loving God and the sin that I sometimes get gripped with. But there is rescue. There is hope. There is deliverance from that cycle over time as I am nearer to my Savior. Now, you will notice this in yourself. When you hang around sinners, when you hang around those people you know rub and communicate the wrong type of direction in life, you know that you sometimes fall into that habit and we fall into that habit because, humanly, we want to be accepted. And humanly, we don't want to be that odd one out. Humanly, we want people to love me. And so sometimes we change our attitude and behavior and characteristics based on the group of people we're hanging out with and we attract ourselves to. If that is those who hate God and have no room for God in their life, then there's no surprise on what you're going to be behaving like. I totally understand it. I'm not predicting it as a fortune teller, but I'm telling you I know exactly what's going to happen. Hateful, envious, jealous, prideful, God-hating people, then there's no surprise that's what's going to rub off on you. Paul looks forward to having Christ being that one who influences him. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. He knows that he's the one who's going to deliver me from this body of death, this cycle of sin, this unending challenge and war that we have as believers between knowing what is right and doing what is wrong. By being near to the Savior, we begin to sin less and less. We be sanctified. Not we be sanctified, we're becoming sanctified. Uh, we can still use proper English. Now, in the book of Colossians, Paul's other book that deals with this, in Colossians chapter 3, we have really, I think, the nuts and bolts of how to live a sanctified life. How does Paul resolve that conflict of knowing what is right but doing what is wrong, having a passion for God but still living in this flesh and falling, temp falling to temptation from it, he gives us, I think, the key to that success in Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 5. But put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. 
That's Paul's way of saying, okay, put to death, that means consider dead those things that are sinful, those things that do not come from God, that are not motivated from love and gentleness and kindness and loving kindness and mercy from God. Put to death those things that are of the flesh. And he says, these are the things that you should put to death, that you should consider gone. Sexual immorality, impurity, passions, not passionate living, but passions for things that are not godly, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So Paul says, okay, that, those type of things that I have may have thought were important in my life at one point cannot be important anymore because I now have a love for God and a love for others. And I want to love God and I want to love others. But these things creep in him. So Paul says, put to death. Do you know what it means to put to death? I know exactly what it means to put to death. Two weeks ago, my mother-in-law passed away. Super hard. Super hard. One of the hardest things to do was to make sure that her apartment was cleaned out. Super hard. Super hard to cleanse that room. Super hard to turn those apartment keys over to the manager. But I know what it's like to put it to death. It's done. It no longer holds a passionate influence in my life. It's cleaned. Not discounting the memories. But Paul is saying, the memories of those sins that you had, put it to death. Turn the keys over to that room, to the manager. That is Christ. Turn it over to Him. Don't let it weigh on you. Don't give it attention. Don't let it stay in the back of your mind unaddressed. But deal with it. Once and for all, finally, hand in the keys of power it has over your life and say goodbye to it. Paul says those things that you keep coming back to, that you know is wrong, but you do it, count it as dead. Count it as dead. Paul gives us motivation to that if we need any more motivation in verse. That is those dead things. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. I love how Paul combines justification as he's talking about sanctification. He's talking about, I'm living before God as if I've never sinned. I'm holy but I still have to put off and stop giving attention to those things that are supposed to be dead in my life. It doesn't make any sense that I go back to it because I am dead to those things. 
There's no life there. There's no joy there. There's no hope there. Why do I keep going back? Because there's sin in me that still rears its ugly head that at times I want to open up the casket and as gross as it sounds, play with it. Disgusting. Revolting. As it should be. He continues and says, and above all these things, oh, sorry, verse, uh, verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Look at, I just love how Paul describes you. Chosen ones, holy and beloved. Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, make sure you tell lots of people about that complaint. If you're reading along with me, it doesn't say that. It says, if anyone has a complaint against someone else, what does it say? Forgive each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, Paul, what's the pinnacle? If there is only one thing for me to focus on, Paul, what should I be focusing on and engaging in? It is love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with, thanks, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. I think, in essence, this struggle between being holy before God, just as if I've never sinned, and dealing with the need to sin less and less in my sanctification, I think that that struggle of living in that tension is best solved and addressed by being thankful. Now, this is not a Thanksgiving message, but I think it really does boil down to, are you thankful? Are you thankful for how he's forgiven you? Are you thankful for his compassion towards you? Are you thankful to the point where you will just sing glorious praises to his name, knowing that you have this ability to express joy to the heavens and before the throne of God because of Jesus Christ. Are you thankful for what he's done? Are you thankful that he made you alive in Christ? Are you thankful that those things are dead to you, that you no longer have to play with them or entertain them or look at them? Are you thankful for what God has done? Because I think a heart and a mind that is set on thankfulness to all that God has done in your life I think that's a heart that is so full of God that it gives very little room for yourself to exist as an idol or self-important. There's very little room for all those things that were put to death if God is so alive that every thought and word and, and part of me is thanking him over and over and over again. 
If your life is filled with thankfulness, there'll be no time for depression. There'll be no time for anger. There'll be no time for just sadness upon sadness or envy upon envy if you are thankful for him moment by moment. Now, Paul has uh, wonderful things to say throughout those entire books, Romans and Colossians, on that idea of dying to sin and living to God, which is turning the keys over to all of that to Christ and saying, I want the new room that you prepared for me, which is walking in life, walking in all of those things, humility, kindness, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, loving one another, forgiving one another, putting on love, binding together, letting Christ rule in your heart. If you've ever been looking for what does it look like to sin less and less, there it is. If you've ever been looking for what am I supposed to do, it's right there, crystal clear. God does not hide how to live the Christian life. He doesn't reveal it to just a select few. He's revealing it to you right here, right now, in clear white and black pages. It's right there. In closing, I want to look at a passage out of 1 John. John is often described as the apostle of love, the one who was super close to Christ in every one of his individual activities with, um, with the disciples. John was always there. And I think John also helps us understand how to resolve this conflict between the action of justification and the process of sanctification when he talks about confession. And I know that that's not a happy thing to do because do you know what confession does? Confession admits that you're wrong. That's hard, isn't it? It's easy to be wrong about little things. Oh, I was wrong about what team was going to win. Oh, big deal. No one cares. Maybe you do care. But I don't think really many people care. But when you say, I've treated you wrongly, I've thought about you wrongly, I've acted wrongly, that is, that's hard. That's hard. And so I think John gives us incredible encouragement here in 1 John 1, 8 and 9. And actually, that entire passage from 5 all the way through 10, but we don't have time to read that, but 8 and 9. If we say that we have no sin, John says, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So if we say that that experience that Paul has is not mine, I'm now sinless, John says, oh, no, 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 no. For the believer, he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 9, but if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. We have to be honest, we sin. It's a process of sinning less and less, but we still sin against God and against one another. And the only remedy for it, according to God, is to confess it. Lots of humility when you have to confess your sin, admit our sin to Christ. But if you caught that in verse 9, there is an incredible promise there, isn't there? Isn't there an amazing promise there? If we confess our sins, what does God say is going to happen? I'm going to hold it over you. I'm going to beat you up with it. I'm going to tell other people about it. I'm going to make fun of you. I'm going to hate you. I'm going to punish you. What does he say? I'm going to forgive you. What? 
But God, I don't deserve it. Doesn't matter. What do you mean it doesn't matter? I love you. And my love carries your sin as far as the east is from the west. They don't meet. If you confess it, he will forgive it. I'm going to close in prayer. And then after that, we're going to take our uh, symbolic hand gestures of vote if you did not have a chance to, uh, to vote. But let's pray first because I, I think God is just calling us to that individual confession on our parts. Lord, as we come before your holy throne, I know, Lord, that, uh, that we feel that tension that Paul had in his normal Christian living of that challenge to go back to sin. Father, forgive us for those times where we have opened up that door to sin and entertained playing with it and engaging with it. Father, we confess our sin to you knowing that you will 100% absolutely forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So Lord, I pray that you would look into our hearts and see what wicked way there is. Reveal it to us, Father. And may we be quick each day to renew that confession and to renew the strength of putting on the newness of the life you've given us in Christ. All praise and glory be to his name, for he is a glorious and great Savior. He has saved us from all of our sins. And to his name and to his glory, we praise him and thank him. And all of God's people said, Amen.